Well, you can make your way over to Romans chapter 13, if you have your Bible. We're going to be talking about politics today, but it will not be in the way that many might think, because I don't ever talk about politics in that way here at the church. If you're looking for a church that talks politics, you're in the wrong church, because I, I don't do that here. Uh, but rather than diving into the latest hot issues that are dividing the people of our nation, we're going to read about how God wants us to think and act as citizens of the country. As mentioned before in Romans chapter 12, uh, when, we, when we got to Romans chapter 12, I said it begins a new major section in the letter of Romans. In the first 11 chapters of the letter, Paul talks about God providing salvation for us through Jesus Christ. And in the remainder of the letter, beginning in chapter 12, he talks about how we are to live as a person who has received salvation through Jesus Christ. These chapters are speaking to Christians about how Christians are to think and behave after becoming Christians. So flip over to Romans 13. We're going to begin in the first verse there. In this first passage of Romans 13, Paul turns from a believer's relationship with other believers and other people in general, which he has been talking about in Romans 12. And now he turns to the believer's relationship with human institutions of authority, such as the government, the laws of society, those who enforce the laws, and so forth. This is about how we as followers of Jesus should conduct ourselves as citizens. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So we're told to be subject to or submit to the governing authorities, which includes the various government institutions, obeying the laws of our society, showing respect for those who have been given authority to enforce those laws, and so on. Well, why? Why should we submit to these authorities, flawed as they are? Because God is the one who has established these authorities, it says, to provide safe and workable societies in this sinful, fallen, broken world. Without governing authorities in place, human self-interest would make society impossible. Now, a day is coming when all of these human institutions of authority will be done away with and replaced by the government of Jesus Christ, but that day is not here yet. So in verse 2, it says, Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So he's saying since God is the one who has established human government and authorities, if a person rebels against those authorities, they're rebelling against what God has put in place. And the consequences of that rebellion will fall on the one who rebels. Verse 3, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, 
agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So the governing authorities are God's servants for our good, meaning providing order for a functioning society to protect the vulnerable and to punish the wrongdoer. And there's the obvious motivation, he says, for obeying the authorities of, to avoid punishment. But the believer also has a higher motive for obeying the authorities as a matter of conscience, he says. When we are doing what we know the Lord wants us to do, in all things, we have a clear conscience. We have a sense inside that we are doing the right thing. Well, in verse 6, says, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to government. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So part of what it means to submit to the governing authorities is to pay our taxes, which go to support those who give their time to governing. Now, you may not feel like you've been getting your money's worth. But that is a discussion for another time. We're told to give to everyone what we owe them, whether it be taxes, revenue, respect, honor, or anything else. We're to pay our debts. There's only one debt that we can never pay off and be free from. This one debt will always be owed, and that is in the very next verse in Romans 8. Verse 8, it says, let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. Well, let's stop here for a moment and let's talk about what Paul has written here and how it plays out in our life. First, is Paul's teaching about submitting to the governing authorities unique to him? And the answer is no. The Apostle Peter teaches the same essential thing in his letter of 1 Peter over in 1 Peter 2. Verse 13, Peter writes this. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Uh, very similar teaching to what Paul has given us. Now, are there limits to our submission to governing authorities? Are we to submit and obey under any and all circumstances? Some things for us to consider. Let's begin by considering the situation that Paul and Peter were in at the time that they wrote the letters of Romans and the letter of 1 Peter. It's believed that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans in AD 57 while he was in the city of Corinth. He wrote this letter to the Christians in the city of Rome while he is in Corinth in AD 57. It's believed that Peter wrote the letter of 1 Peter in the very early 60s, between 60 and 63, while he himself was actually living in Rome. The Caesar of Rome, 
during that time was the infamous Nero, who served as Caesar from 54 to 68. Nero was not only the supreme human authority over the city of Rome, but over the entire Roman Empire. Nero was one of the most godless, cruel, selfish, heartless, evil people to ever rule in human history. And Christians were the scapegoat for his wicked rage. Nero was responsible for some of the most awful persecutions ever brought against Christians. Accused them of terrible crimes, worked to turn the whole of society against them, took away their property and their rights, publicly tortured and killed them in all kinds of brutal and horrendous ways. The worst of these persecutions broke out in AD 64 following the great fires of Rome, which he blamed the Christians for. Paul and Peter each wrote their letters during Nero's reign, shortly before the great persecution of 64. Paul's letter was written to the Christians in Rome six or seven years before the great persecutions in Rome broke out. Peter was living in Rome when he wrote his letter, perhaps a year or so before the great persecutions began. So this is the context in which Paul and Peter wrote their letters about submitting to governing authorities. Both Paul and Peter suffered firsthand under the tyranny of Nero, both being killed by him as martyrs for their faith in Christ. So when they tell us to submit to the governing authorities, it carries the weight of their own blood. These were not the words of some remote theoreticians. They lived and literally died by these words. The governing authorities of our own country today, as awful as some think they are, even in their worst moments, are quite a ways away from the Roman government of that day in regards to their attitude toward Christians in the church. Now, does this imply that we are to submit to the governing authorities in all situations? No. But it does mean that even very unchristian governments are to be submitted to under most circumstances. We have examples in the Bible and the church history, though, when God's people have disobeyed the government, disobeyed the authorities, and were right to do so at the time because those authorities were commanding believers to do things that were a violation of God's greater law. Some examples. In Exodus chapter 1, when the Hebrew midwives in Egypt refused to carry out Pharaoh's command to kill the Jewish baby boys that were born, they were doing the right thing, and the Lord rewarded them for it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3 refused to bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold image. They were thrown into a huge fiery furnace for their refusal to obey the king. They were willing to face that consequence 
whether God would, re- would rescue them from that furnace or not. It so happened, as you might remember, God did rescue them. Daniel himself, in Daniel chapter 6, was thrown into a den of hungry lions because he disobeyed the law that forbid him to pray to the Lord. Mordecai, in the book of Esther, refused to show honor to the wicked man Haman who sought to exterminate the Jewish people. Peter and John refused to obey when they were commanded by the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem to not teach or preach about Jesus being the Christ. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18, having put Peter and John in jail for preaching about Jesus, it says, Then they, the Sanhedrin, called them, Peter and John, in before them and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Well, after giving them more threats, the authorities released Peter and John, and they went right back out and continued to preach about Jesus in disobedience to the orders of the Jewish authorities. So in Acts 5.27, it says the apostles were brought in, made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. We have the example of Jesus over in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. When he was asked about paying taxes to Caesar, verse 15, says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Well, in answering the question, Jesus, he teaches us to respect the authorities over us, paying taxes and obeying the laws, but the authority of these human institutions is not absolute. Give Caesar his coins, since his image is on those, but give yourself to God because his image is on you. As a Christian, a follower of Jesus, our ultimate allegiance is to God rather than any human authorities. Simply being under an authority that is sinful and ungodly is not an adequate justification for civil disobedience. There needs to be more of a reason than that. 
Although Peter, he refused to submit to the command of the Jewish authorities to not preach about Jesus, he submitted himself to the ungodly authority of Nero. Civil disobedience in the name of Christ is not something to be done without very prayerful and thoughtful consideration. It's not an easy decision to make. There needs to be a clear and unavoidable conflict between God's commands and what the human authority is commanding us to do. And that's not always easy to determine because too often people will claim that they're being expected to disobey the command of God when in reality it's their own personal agenda at play. It's easy for us to confuse our personal agenda with God's agenda. I mean, people are doing this all of the time in the political debates and culture wars that rage in our country. Both sides of the aisle claim the moral high ground and try to make Jesus carry their flag. When human authorities demand the place that only God can rightfully have, then we're obligated to disobey. Pay taxes to Caesar, but don't worship him, even though he declares himself to be a God. Now, if disobedience is necessary, that disobedience is to be done in a respectful and a Christ-honoring way. I mean, in the examples of justified civil disobedience that we have in the Bible, the people doing it were respectful and God-honoring in how they did it. And they were willing to suffer the consequences that came as a result of that disobedience. Now, under a democratic form of government, we can participate in the process of establishing and changing the laws of the land. For us, Submitting to the human authorities over us certainly means that we should indeed submit to the authorities, but we can also work within the system to change things which we believe are unjust and wrong. Now this uh, question could you know, be discussed and discussed and discussed, but hopefully that helps you a little bit to sort through some of it. Paul, he now brings all that he has been teaching us in Romans 12 and 13 about how we are to live as a person who has received salvation. He brings it all under the one grand command to love in verse 8. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So the one debt that we always owe is the debt to love one another. This is the one debt we can never pay off. It's always owed. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And then he actually elaborates on this in the next verse. He says, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. There's a beautiful simplicity in this teaching to love. All of the commandments having to do with how we are to think and act toward others are captured by this one idea. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. We're to have the same loving regard for others that we instinctively have for ourselves. If we will do that, we will be fulfilling the commandments of the Lord. When Jesus was asked, which of the most, which of the commandments is the most important? This is how he answered that question in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. It says, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor as yourself is the most important people-facing commandment. I think it's always worth pointing out and reminding ourselves that the love that's being talked about here is not a love of warm feelings, but a love of willful action. It's a love that's described this way in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. This is the kind of love that fulfills the commandments of the Lord. I think it's so important for us to remember that, that it's not this warm feeling that we're trying to work up toward people. It's about how we think and treat people, regardless how we feel. It doesn't matter if we feel warm and fuzzy toward that person. We can still be patient and kind, not proud, not dishonoring, not self-seeking, not easily angered, not resentful, caring for people's good, caring for them. Well, we come here at the end of the chapter, beginning of verse 11 to this beautiful concluding paragraph by Paul. In these closing verses of the chapter, Paul uses dark and light, night and day, asleep and awake, as metaphors to contrast who we were and who we are now. We're now people who have received salvation and been brought to life spiritually, and we are living for and looking forward to the completing of our salvation with the coming of Jesus Christ. So verse 11, he says, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. We're to wake up. Jesus himself, he told us to keep watch and to be ready because we don't know what day the Lord will come. No one knows. We need to always be ready for the coming of the Lord. It could come at any moment, he says. But, but that shouldn't fill us with, 
with fear and dread. Instead, it should fill us with hope and encouragement. It's a day that will be of celebration for those who are in Jesus Christ. The struggles of this life will be over and our salvation will be completed. It says our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. As believers, as people who have received salvation through Jesus Christ, we are to be the most hopeful people in the world. Not hopeful that this world will find its way through the endless waves of troubles and messes, but hopeful that no matter how troubling things look, we know the Lord is coming back to rescue and redeem. There are days when I scan through the news feeds and, and I wonder how people who have nothing to hope in beyond this life, how they keep themselves from completely losing it. The wars, the environmental disasters, racial unrest, terrible violence, the gross injustices, economic crises, the technological terrors, the unstoppable diseases, the ever-present marching of death, and so on. I'm so grateful that I have hope beyond this world. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Twelve. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. What is this armor of light that we are to put on? It's contrasted with the deeds of darkness and the desires of the flesh. Some of these are listed here. Carousing, drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, jealousy. I think it's always interesting that Things like dissension and jealousy are listed as deeds of darkness right alongside things like drunkenness and sexual immorality and debauchery. See, some of the sins that we are quick to dismiss, overlook, accept, because they're so common among us, like jealousy. They're just as destructive and needing to be repented of as any of the more notorious sins are. They're not more acceptable to God. Armor of light is equated with behaving decently and clothing ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. The armor of light, then, is Christ-likeness. It's thinking and behaving like Jesus in this world. Paul tells us to put off our old self and to put on our new self in Ephesians, which is a, a very similar idea in Ephesians 4.22. It says, You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, 
to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You remember in Romans 12, chapter 12, verse 2, it said, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember this here, and he says, be made in the attitude of your mind. See, same, same idea. And in Colossians, Paul wrote this in Colossians 3.12, it says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So, we, so when we're told to put on the armor of light and to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, we're being told to take on his character and nature. Be like Jesus. Think like Jesus. Act like Jesus. That's what it means. To clothe ourselves with him and to put on the armor of light in this context. Our salvation is coming very soon. And as we wait for him, let us live like him in this world. As we've said the last couple of weeks, think differently and live differently. Amen? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for the guidance you give us, the, the wisdom that you equip us with, the, the the different way of thinking and behaving that you've called us to, Lord. We pray that you would make these things so in us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would think like Jesus, act like Jesus, be like Jesus in this world. Make it so in us, Lord. We thank you for your good grace. In Jesus' name, amen.